After World War II, many Americans were rapidly rebuilding their lives. A massive economic surge swept across the country as returning GIs started families, settled into suburbs, and returned to the workforce in mass. This was a time of tremendous patriotism and economic growth, but also of hyperconformity, of McCarthyism, segregation, and male chauvinism. The picket fence suburban homes were identical. The department stores all carried the same dresses, the same lawnmowers, the same books. A Buick in every driveway and an RCA television in every living room. There was a growing feeling of resentment at this unseen national steamroller squashing individuality into cookie-cutter American figurines. And so the seed was planted into the minds of millions of veterans, housewives, and people of color. By the time the 1960s came, this seed had grown into an emerging counterculture. And at the splintered edge of this reckoning was a figure of both fantasy and nightmare. Beyond the surfers and the hot rodders, beyond the beat poets and the folk singers, beyond the rock and roll, the activists, the hippies, and the druggies, was the biker. Living at the fringe, fueled by mythology and angst, captured on film out of fascination and terror. This is Biker Films Part 1, where we will discuss Sandy Harbutt's 1974 film, Stone. It's a discussion that begins in a small town in California, swings through Australia, and ultimately lands in the south of France. This is Solid Six Movie Podcast. I'm Josh Griffith, your host for today's episode. And as always, I'm joined by Alison DeGrazio and Brady Kimball. I thought you were going to be talking about Jesus there for a hot second. Hey. That was on a different podcast. That was last week. <laughs> hey. Uh, yeah, I'm stuck in the podcast from last week. It's been, it feels like a month it, since. No, it, right. like yeah. so much has happened again. Yeah, exactly. We, we had we had our winter shutdown snowstorm, mm-hmm. uh, which was terribly exciting. But yes, it feels like it has been actually yeah. forever since mm-hmm. we saw you. I've got like two episodes worth of content to get out of my mouth. <laughs> Good luck uh, keeping up with my rapid speech. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding, everyone. Uh, but as Brady mentioned, like last week was kind of a, your mea culpa with Mormonism, yep. so to speak. And I think this series, both of these episodes about biker stuff are kind of kind of feel like that for me. Oh, cool. Because I've been goofing around with motorbikes, big and small, mostly small, for and clubs and club scenes and all this kind of stuff for like 20 years. Nice. So even though I've never, you know, worn like a leather vest on purpose. <laughs> um, <laughs> you just walked into a vest. I'm, I'm definitely... Uh, you know, that's not... No, it's not leather. You have a denim. It's denim. It's the, it's the right material. The correct Wait, material. He has mm. a denim club jacket. Yeah. It's called a cut. Okay. It has, pa- has patches, has pins. Yes. It's dirty. Mm-hmm. It smells like something. Mm-hmm. He wears it for rallies. Yeah. It's remarkable. I go to rallies. <laughs> yeah. So, what's, Josh, what's, uh, what's the biggest, what's the biggest bike? The biggest you've bike worked I've on? Worked on? Yeah. Uh, 1200 cc's. So, I, I holy shit. Uh, BMW. GS, which is like a really fancy pants yeah. dual sport. It's for the road, but also for dirt. It's mostly like a rich guy's bike. James Bond. <laughs> That's what I tell people yeah, when James I go Bond on dates. It's <laughs> 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 for the road, but also dirt. <laughs> hey. <laughs> this whole sequence is going to be kind of dealing with that. The whole shadow boxing between culture and reality. I mean, what do you, how do you guys feel about Juggalos? Well, I have mm. come around on them. How so? I find them to be a very inclusive group. Uh, I think over time, the 
counter-terrorism department of the FBI that labeled them as a domestic terrorist threat. They were Actually, labeled as domestic terrorists? Yes. Or like some gang. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the I don't know what the overlap is of the gang moniker versus domestic terrorist, but early nineties, I remember they were they were fucked with and it was this boomerang, like this slingshot of like, oh, we'll show you how good we are and wholesome. They're like three eleven fans with makeup on. Yes. I fucking hate juggalos. <laughs> Anyway, you would uh, know better than us because you're from Ohio. So I, I assume that dude, it, that's like near the gravitation. Zero, yeah, yeah. They're, they're from they're from Michigan. I no, no, not what's, even not even as a joke. What's your problem? Did you ever run in, or is it? My problem is just as biker movies glamorize violence, juggalos in general glamorize stupidity. I do have to side with Josh on this because I personally have a big chip on my shoulder against white trash Mm -hmm. for the sake of being white trash. There's one thing if you don't know, but when you know when you double down, I have Mm -hmm. a really tough time with Uh, it. (laughs) That makes sense. But we'll we'll get in more of this the kind of like uh, shadow boxing between uh, culture and reality in a bit here. How's everybody doing? I'm good. Every once in a while, I fall down a really weird rabbit hole on YouTube. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we've talked about pimple popping and that. I mean, kindred spirits over here. But this time, I don't know what the recommendation engine was doing, but I am down the deep rabbit hole of GeoGuessr, which is a online game using Google Maps where you have to guess where the image is from the street view of Google Maps. Oh, street view. Yeah. Actually, that sounds really okay. fun. There's different rules. Some of them you can move a certain amount of spaces away from the original destination, and some of them you can't move. You just like plant and like look around. So there's different constraints. So Are like, there prizes? High score, baby. Okay. Leaderboards. So, okay. So I watched the number two player in the entire world look at five different locations where he it planted him in some random location and all he could do was like look around. Oh, uh, okay. And it was fucking nuts because he like zooms in on a sign and he's like, okay, that sign has like three different languages on it. It must be Montenegro. And so then... What you do is you put a pin somewhere on the Google Maps and then you say you click the guest button and it gives you points based on how close you are to the actual location. Is this person not American? He's British. (laughs) (laughs) Good guess. So I sat on the toilet a couple days ago and watched a 30 minute video of this guy just kind of speaking out loud of, you know, being in Mexico, uh, the Philippines, uh, Kenya. Sure. Yeah. And he's just kind of like thinking out loud with his thought process. And I can just hear you in there distantly going like, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. So other than other than that, uh, random. Did he get any wrong or is it like a point system? The most points you can get is 5000 points. And the further away you are from the actual location, it subtracts points. I see. Mm -hmm. But the furthest away that he had was two miles. Oh, wow. What? Man, that's really, yeah, that's really good. <laughs> yeah, shit. And this is a loca- This is again. This is the one where he couldn't traverse the road. I feel like he's cheating, or he does this all the time. What? Like I, this is his life. This is like. Man, I should try this out. This sounds fun. It does sound fun, actually. Yeah. So it's like there's all these avenues to like recreate yourself, and your your nerdisms be- can become like financially fortuitous for you. And I'm just fucking sitting here playing Animal Crossing. I should get paid for this. Uh, you are dangerously close to being a Twitch streamer. You're right. <laughs> I think I can Is have anyone a good Twitch following. streaming Stardew Valley? 
Oh, tons of people. Oh, are they? Well, oh that's just God, what I, I would, know. I would eviscerate these people. Do you know how quickly I got four fucking candles when I was uh, inadvertently trying to beat Josh's best friend, Noah, and he didn't know it? I was in a secret you, competition with his best friend and I you, won. I you, won! I didn't realize that Stardew Valley was a competition. <laughs> it's, it's not. Unless you make it. Yeah. Well, you should, you should look into what it, becomes, what it uh, takes to be a Twitch streamer. Unfortunately, generally speaking, the less clothing you wear, the better. So just be prepared. What if I just like <laughs> painted my body with nipples? It's against the terms of service. You just like tape like a bunch of pepperoni slices to your skin. Yeah. Which one's the real one, assholes? Yeah. That's uh, against the terms of service. I've okay. checked. Um, but because we're a movie podcast, uh, the movie I want to point out is Johnny Guitar from 1954, directed by Nicholas Ray, starring Joan Crawford and Sterling Hayden. Who was known for a lot of his like film noir, and uh, he was the he was one of the dudes in Doctor Strangelove, oh. uh, one of the generals. Or again, people are going to be screaming at me who listen who have been better memory than me. But Johnny Guitar is about it's about a woman who owns a casino in some remote town, and everyone in the town is a bunch of farmers and villagers that don't like her being there. And she's a boss bitch that wears like a plaid shirt and denim jeans. Mm-hmm. Ooh. And is like... Ooh, and is the guy that's going against her fall in love with her? They used to be lovers. Mm-hmm. And she hires him to come to her casino to play guitar. And over time, you realize how their tryst was actually a intimate, passionate love affair, but they were both independent people who struggled to be mm-hmm. a couple. Married to the sea. Yeah. I highly recommend this movie because Joan Crawford is awesome. You know, lady standing on with her hands on hips with her, you know, power stance, telling a bunch of villagers off, basically calling her a floozy for running her own shenanigans. Sure. But yeah, the dialogue really melodramatic, you know, just that classic, like people don't talk that way thing from the fifties, but the script is so good. Oh, I'm like, okay. oh my God, I'm in love with this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I used to watch a lot of film noir from like the 40s and like gangster movies from the 30s. I've kind of fallen out of it recently. Mm-hmm. So it was a nice kind of return to that where even though it was a Western, it felt like... Zim, zam, yeah, zoom kind yeah. of dialogue. So highly recommend that. Awesome. I've heard nothing but good things about it. I've never seen it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Same. What did you want to tell me? Well, I'm too scared now that you've got a gun. You'd better lay off him, kid. I wouldn't hurt him. I wasn't thinking of you hurting him. What do you mean he might uh, shoot himself in the leg trying to draw? (laughs) No. But if I were you, I wouldn't fool around with Johnny Logan. Are you Johnny Logan? That's the name, friend. Well. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Logan. I never shake hands with a left-handed draw. Allison, how you uh, doing? Great. Totally normal, emotionally <laughs> stable week. Um, I, you know, just, just sitting here going on runs and hiking and, uh, you know, long walks on the beach and stuff like that. But truly what's been going on is... When the hell is uh, <laughs> have you guys seen, Have you guys like tuned into this Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel on Netflix? No. It's a four, oh, par- yeah. four part docuseries about uh, Elisa Lam who went missing and then was found on the in the water tanks on the Cecil Hotel. I was living in LA at the time when this was happening and I already kind of knew her story based mm. off of other true crime things that I listened to, but I, I wanted to watch this because people were really raving about it online and those people are idiots. So um if any if this is 
anything, the show ends up being an example of like how QAnon became like the trough for uh, people with fetal alcohol syndrome. Like people whoa. just came like whoa. running to this in droves and they were like, she's missing and this death metal guy definitely killed her even though he was in oh, Mexico. Yeah. Like, Every time like, there's like a new bit of evidence, they seize on a new conspiracy but, theory. But the conspiracy theories were like... Guys, more and more elaborate. Like, nobody has that kind of time. Sure, like LAPD are, are shit bags, but like they don't have that kind of time to come up with this stuff. Like they just want to go home. Right. Mm. So it was it was got pretty spun out. I think the last episode wrapped it up really well to what actually okay. happened. But um, when you say spun out, it means to me like it was it oh, didn't oh. justify its length kind oh. of thing. No, it didn't. It didn't. Like it was it was four hour long episodes mm. that went into basically how bizarre the situation was. And then two episodes on the mystery and the kind of overspun possibilities of what could have happened to her that were just like so far out there. But they waited the last half hour of the last episode to be like, no, actually it was just like she was mentally ill. (laughs) (laughs) Have you heard anything about this story? So Uh, basically this girl wound up in a water tank. No, I don't. When you say seaside, is it seaside California? No, Cecil. Cecil. It was Cecil. In, yeah, it was in no. downtown LA. Clearly shows so, that I don't No, know. it was... So basically, she was a tourist. She had type 1 bipolar disorder mm-hmm. and was prone to actual psychosis and then stopped taking her meds mm-hmm. and was having hallucinations and auditory hallucinations and was getting paranoid. And so there's this video of her kind of popping in and out of an elevator that was really, it's pretty terrifying and it, it, it's really spooky to watch. Um, yeah. She's acting weird. She's just like being weird in an elevator. But yeah. it, it also looks like she's talking to someone in the hallway, but there's nobody there. So people thought that it was a murder, but what was happening is she was basically trying to hide from whatever this perceived thing that was happening to her was uh, and she hid in the water tower but she she accidentally drowned so holy shit um but it was this huge huge thing like uh when i when i was living down there uh that was happening and then who was the who was the guy who was killing all the lapd officers at the same time oh uh i want to say chris chris something. chris something they were both going on at the same time it was wild 2013 was crazy i was gonna say what time was it okay so when you say two episodes were all conspiratorial, I just imagine like a retired LAP- LAPD guy in his pajamas, like making himself breakfast, just like mumbling to the camera about how he lost the lead. No, no, they were totally like, we let out this one piece of evidence and now people are linking it to like, her name is also the code for this one specific type of like <laughs> tuberculosis, tuberculosis test, which that means was, FEMA's in on it. Yeah, which 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 is like this hepatitis oh outbreak that was happening in Skid Row, and they were like, "It's all she's a spy, and she was the red herring ah. to this like right in it." And it was just like, guys, no. I can see why, <laughs> given our contemporary times, why you'd be frustrated as a viewer. Yeah. So anyway, that that was the thing. Uh, I was in a was this for Valentine's Day. Josh and I watched a romantic comedy oh, yes. for Valentine's Day. We watched Only You, 1994, with Robert Downey Jr. and Marissa Tomei. That's right. And it was real cute. And Billy Zane is in it. Yeah. What a, <laughs> just what a guy. The Zaneinator. Yeah, I can see. I can see why he's a cult favorite. Mm-hmm. So also, uh, and of course, the name slips me at the moment. But the same guy, the same director of Moonstruck. Yes, it was yeah. cute. It was cute. Yeah. Norman Jewison. There it is. Yes, there he is. Yeah. yeah, our boy. Which we covered Moonstruck, by the way, prior. Go back previously. and listen. 
on yeah. episode. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't know if I told you this, but when I was younger, I had multiple people say that I looked like Billy Zane, and I was like, I can see it. Get, get the fuck out of here, because I don't have his. I don't have his mouth. I don't have his weird. His, I smile like a cad mouth. Yes. Yeah. He. I'm sorry. <laughs> he's got the. He's got the like. I slipped your girlfriend a roofie smile. Yes. Yes. Right. right? Uh, Good uh, description. Yeah. I. It's kind of sneaky. Okay. So, what is the plot of Only You? So, as um, Italians are apt to do, super superstitious. This young woman through a Ouija board discovers the name of her uh, betrothed, her future true love. When she's like ten or eleven. Yeah. And so, fast forward however many years, she's a teacher. She answers the phone call and the guy who leaves a message for her future husband has the name of the man that she's supposed to be with. So she, like any level-headed woman would do, flies to Italy to go find him. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's destiny and he it's doesn't destiny. know it's destiny, but yes, she knows, she it's, knows destiny. it's destiny. So she, she does some like insane stunts to uh, find him. And in, in between all this, she gets like met up with Robert Downey Jr. who may or may not be the right guy. Oh, uh, so the whole plot is a red herring for this other... Yes. So, skips. yeah, she, she meets this guy along the way, and he says he's the right guy, but then he's lied to her because he he knows that she's the right woman for him. It causes a rift. What a dick. It's kind of a dick move. It's whatever. It's charming. It's 94. <laughs> it's 1994. Lying in the name of love is charming. <laughs> Passion. <laughs> It's, ni- it's 94. Yeah. So yeah, that was, it was super cute. I really enjoyed it. It was a good pick. Yeah. Marissa Tomei. She's cute as a bug. Mm-hmm. I think Robert Downey Jr. He, he does. He's carrying he's like, so the, charming. the load of that movie on yes. his back. He's like so he's really carrying it. Mm-hmm. And Billy Zane shows up for a, a few quick laughs, which is great. Also charming. 15 years later, he proposed. She settled for Dwayne. Oh, oh, I know you don't like them. So that's okay. Is it all off? Yeah, I do. But changing your destiny. Hello? Isn't that easy? Hi, I'm an old high school buddy of Dwayne. My name is B-R-A-D-L-E-Y. Hello? Damon Bradley? Yeah. Where are you? I'm on my way to Venice. Oh! Fake! It's a coincidence! It is not a coincidence! It's fake! I just want to get a look at him, that's all! Now she's going to find her one true love. He's here. (laughs) Even if he's someone... I'm Damon Bradley. Yeah. Josh, how are you? How was your week? I'm good. I'm good. Watched a bunch of biker movies to get ready for this show. But other than the biker movies, there's two things that are on my mind. Number one is uh, Dark Man. I've never seen it. Okay, it's, it's, it's Sam Raimi at his oh. nuttiest. Oh my God. So this movie, Sam Raimi directs movies the way Nicolas Cage acts in movies. Mm-hmm. Oh like my it's, God. Just, description. it's just fucking just throw everything out there, throttle on full. I yeah. can't believe I forgot that we watched that. It is an excellent movie. Yeah, it was way better than I remembered. It's a lot of fun. It's really self-assured. No inner doubts. Also, Liam Neeson never put himself in that position ever again. I feel like so? acting wise. No, I feel like that was the only time I saw him be that weird. <laughs> yeah, he was He was weird and he was, he was just willing to go with it. it was he was great. doing all the stuff. It was so good. So I, I really love, enjoyed Dark Man. I haven't seen it in a long, long time and I really loved it. Is it based on an actual comic? Or is it just no, that it's, it's, it's based- cashing in on that whole like Dick Tracy, yeah, the shadow, exactly, exactly, Rocketeer, yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. It's basically, Sam Raimi wanted to invent his own guy, or maybe maybe it's based on something. I don't know. No, I think he I think he just like came up with it. But yeah, it's like a Phantom of the Opera meets Dick Tracy meets Batman kind of thing. Mm. Interestingly, or as a tangent, I should say, <laughs> when I was watching the movie, I was questioning whether or not video games had become enough of a commercial influence to impact the plot of the movie because several of the closing action sequences between Darkman and various villains resembled kind of like side-scrolling video games that mm-hmm. would have been appropriate at the time on your Sega Genesis or Super Nintendo. And I looked up the video game, or uh, it was still a original NES, mm-hmm. totally different system. So it wasn't like they were thinking about video games at that point. Uh, that was just a, a lark in my brain. So there's literally side-scrolling camera? Well, there, there's a sequence where Darkman is dangling from a helicopter on a wire. Oh, my God. And he's basically, because Sam Raimi, going down the freeway at freeway level where he's having to dodge and duck and jump like around. Like fucking things. Contra? It's, it's amazing. Sure. Yeah, like Contra. It, and then the end sequence, the very end sequence, the final bad guy is in a incomplete skyscraper with all of the, the girders and the I-beams all fully exposed. And this guy is shooting like a uh, like a rivet gun, you know, like an industrial mm-hmm. rivet gun for securing things together. He's like firing rivets at him, and I was like, "This is exactly like a video game." Cool, but that's not how the video game is played. Didn't you? So. Well, I mean, it's it's pretty close. There's a lot of elevators. I was envisioning the end sequence having an alien squid, a la Watchmen. Contra or, or Watchmen. Watchmen, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The only other thing I'll bring up is has nothing to do with movies, but um, if you're a sci-fi nerd, this is a, this is big stuff. It's important stuff. I've been waiting. I've been intentionally. I've been waiting to talk about this with you. I'm assuming you're talking about Mars. No, I can talk about Mars. That's all right. That's obvious. Hang Cut on. Cut it out. No, you go. You go where you want to go. We, we can talk. We can talk it's, Mars later. Let me just put it this this way. It's been a big week for science. It's been a big big week for science. NASA landed the Perseverance rover. With the little unity or ingenuity, excuse me, helicopter attached to the underside, going to fly away. Buddy comedy in the making. I love it. Uh, <laughs> but the other thing, perhaps even outshining the landing of the Perseverance rover, I would say, is that one of the big problems with space travel, going anywhere in space, where you want, where you want to put people on Mars or you want to go visit the moons of Jupiter or whatever, is cosmic radiation. Because once you right. move beyond the Van Allen belts of Earth's magnetosphere, the radiation gets really intense. Mm-hmm. And you either need to get where you're going in a hurry or you're going to have to think about long impacts of the like cancer, sterilization, right. stuff like that. All from high energy cosmic rays, x-rays, gamma rays, whatever. That's my man right there. <laughs> so there is no real way of mitigating this effect. Like they've used water to test it out. They've got the only thing that could really confront this this kind of radiation is the magnetosphere of Earth. So you either have to create an artificial magnetosphere around a spacecraft traveling through space, or you have to be ready to deal with cancer. But <laughs> magnets <laughs> or cancer, take your pick. <laughs> but a research team that was crawling around the Chernobyl disaster site, the power plant, discovered an extremophile fungus that absorbs high energy radiation and a layer of fungus about a 16th of an inch thick will absorb about 2% of the overall radiation in outer space that they're worried about. No fucking way. So what they're thinking about is if they were to just layer this stuff, you know, a couple inches thick, 
it basically kills all of the high energy cosmic radiation. Would the heat on takeoff kill it off though? Well, not necessarily. I mean, if it doesn't kill people, they're insulated from either that or they can just take the spores in a safe little container up to space, let it grow, and then they go launch to wherever. Mm -hmm. So, but the point is mother nature doing us a solid, uh, somehow this extremophile fungus has created the perfect solution for insulating human beings for spaceflight. That's amazing. It's, it's huge news. I am just envisioning you. This is what it must feel like for people to listen to me when I talk about some obscure record because people will be like, oh, I'm totally into this band or I'm totally into this genre. And I'm like, oh, have you really heard about this other thing? It's, it's exactly the same thing because like the Mars stuff is like all the rage, but I'm just envisioning you going around Twitter responding to everyone. Hashtag over it overrated well no no i'm not i'm not over it it's not overrated it's wonderful and the fact that they got like video of it like you you can watch as of today there's a video of the whole like landing sequence it's wonderful i'm psyched it's pretty (laughs) it's pretty amazing you realize that spores is something you brought up like a month ago of like you being really into like fuck you spores yeah (laughs) yeah You're getting your comeuppance. Listen, I've been really all about like distant laboratory issues going wrong. This could be. Oh, yeah. What if this is that? Great. The the fungus. Well, it's not even it. No, no, no. It's not even it because it's like they just they just confirmed to have found actual DNA from the mammoth that predates the woolly mammoth. I forget the name Mm -hmm. of it. The Meomastodon? Something. I don't know. I don't I don't remember. It's got a XC something. But. Like I'm thinking like with the permafrost that's melting and they're able to access like yeah different bacteria and fungus and things like that that would happen like millions of years ago. And I'm like, maybe let's not touch those. Right. Yeah. Leave it be. What if we didn't do that? Because I just keep thinking like basically there's a whole theory that the reason that we are 98 degrees is because spores and fungus cannot survive in a temperature like that. So it you know allowed our evolution to keep going. But now they're finding that there is this one virulent strain that has been killing tons of people. And it's basically this fungal spore that has evolved enough to be able to sustain itself in 98 degrees. Holy shit. And it's going to be like the last of us. I was just I was actually just going to say that, like, if what if last of us was in space because the spore experiment in space would create astronaut clickers. Oh, shit, Brady. Shit! Yeah! Radioactive spore. <laughs> Brady's trying to snap his fingers. Like he just dropped hot knowledge on us. But it uh, looks like he's... He's having a seizure. It looks like he's having a seizure. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, that's great. We have... Oh, we have a voicemail. We have a voicemail. We have a voicemail. We have voicemail. Brady? Yeah. As a reminder, you can send us a voicemail at solid6.net slash voicemail or email us at podcast at solid6.net. We sure do appreciate it. We have a voicemail from Wayne. Hiya. How you doing there, uh, guys? Wayne here. Hi. Hi. Okay. I really just started listening to this new episode. Um, a nice break because you, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> I don't know where you guys went, but this popped up two days later. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm just kind into your, like what you watched and uh, I got a couple things to say. Josh, you're fucking wrong. There's a lot of beautiful women in Russ's Myers films. Uh-huh. Um, check out Harry, Harry, Harry and Rich, Raquel, Vixen, um, fucking Valley of the Super Vixens, right? Is that the movie? Super Vixens, Mud Honey, fucking beautiful woman. I don't give a fuck what you say. Two, Julie Strain was a beautiful woman. Tits out all the time in her movies. Okay. And some of the movies she, wa- she made were shit. 
But she was a beautiful woman and she was a great actress. Eat a dick, RIP to her. Two. Uh, what the hell? Um, Tenet, bullshit. Inception, bullshit. I agree with you completely. Those movies are shit. Garbage. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Yorgos Lathamos. Um, I'm a fan of Mon- Monty Python and they were never able to fin- finish a sketch. Ever. Any mm-hmm. fucking thing they ever did, they were never really able to finish it properly without having a brainstorming session. Oh, that's it. I like his film for that. It kind of leaves it open and kind of leaves it there to make you think about what's going on. Uh, it's, I always like his films. I don't know. Check out Alps if you've never seen that. It came out after Dogtooth. It's a really underrated film of his um, because no one really talks about it. A lot of people kind of didn't like it. I like it a lot. Anyway, uh, maybe I'll call back because I'm only like, I don't know, 20 minutes in. And this new guy, who is this guy? Andrew? 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 Oh, he sounds fantastic. I can't wait to hear what he has to say about everything. All right. Bye. Bye. Wonderful. Thank you, Wayne. Of everything, he like literally dropped like 15 different things. Uh, I would say. It's like we're having a conversation with him that's lasted two weeks. (laughs) Exactly. That's great. The only thing I picked out of that was Julie Strain's boobs. So oh, did you pull it up? I've been... Let me no, I, I'm familiar with them. I'll pull it up. I've threatened to do an Andy Sedaris double feature, and she features prominently in mm. a number of his films. So mm-hmm. it was a good reminder. Um, she just passed away a few months ago, I believe. So. Yeah. Good. I'm glad I'm looking her up by honoring her with her boobs. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, um, Gitsoft was talking a lot about Mm -hmm. this. Yeah, that's right. Yep, our friend Alistair over at Gitsoft. Alistair! Our favorite softcore podcast. Okay, great. So there's a segment I want to walk out here. Uh, Allison really likes to talk about plastic surgery any chance she oh, can get. So we're doing this. And basically anytime I look at an actress or... An actress comes up. It's like, oh, yeah, Gwyneth mm-hmm. Paltrow. She's had some work done. Sandra Bullock. She's had some. Oh, God. She's had so much work done. Listen. And then I say, hey, how, all right. I, I don't disagree. But like, how do you know? Mm-hmm. So I was going to introduce perhaps a regular segment to the show. And I had a couple of different names for it. I was thinking of a slice of life with LED. <laughs> 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 or possibly Allison Celluloid Slice Rooney. That's another uh-huh. one. And finally, my favorite is called My Neck, My Back, My Buttocks, and My Rack. <laughs> Allison's Plastic Surgery Roundup. Oh my God, Josh, that's it. You did that's it. That's it. I love it. I love it. So, so are we doing it? Just just unburden yourself. What's going on in the world of celebrity plastic surgery right now? Listen, I just, I, in my personal opinion, I, I think it would be safe to say that like about 97% of actors have had work done. A majority of those are their noses. Tiny tweaks, little narrowing, lip fillers, cheek fillers, they've all had them done. So mm. like when I watch, especially now that we're watching like super famous actresses that have had careers spanning decades. So if right. we talk about like Nicole Kidman or Sandra Bullock, it, Hollywood doesn't allow you to age. And so now when I was watching, um, uh, what was the horror thriller that Sandra Bullock was in recently? Bird Box. So Bird Box, it's the same. She, you know, had some fillers done, perhaps some Botox. She wasn't able to um, uh, do a lot of expressions. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with Nicole Kidman. We were talking about that last week. Nicole Kidman doesn't have expressions ever anymore. Like Big Little Lies. Mm-hmm. She, there's no, she's not moving that upper lip. No. Ever. 
she's articulating through misty eyes. Yes, exactly. And, you know, like Gwyneth Paltrow's had some work done. Cindy Crawford's had work done. Like there's, who's that big, big dude who's like obviously just had knives on his face forever? Mickey Rourke. Thank you. There it is. Yeah. Mickey Rourke has had work done, but like even Chris Pratt has had work done. They've all had like little things. Mm-hmm. And I feel Wait, like. Wait, hang on a second. What, what, what has Chris Pratt had done? I feel like he's had some fillers and some little bit of like. Do you know anything about this, Brady? Chin no. and nose stuff. I was expecting you to say his calf implants, but. He doesn't have calf implants. I don't know. I just. But don't. see, you reject that so quickly. But but how do you know? Exactly. He's had fillers. Yeah. I'm looking it up right now. No. But. You, you mentioned nose being the ubiquitous thing. With noses, is it one of those things that once you take it away, you can't put it back? Like you just kind of shave and shave and shave down with rhinoplasty? I think how, like, so. You can't, you can't put it back. It's just, it's basically what it seems to be is that there, there seem to be narrowing the nostril area. So like I, whatever, the, the, the nose is just not as wide as it usually is. So we were looking at Sandra Bullock earlier. I'm looking and, at Chris Pratt now. And I, and I, I got to say like Sandra Bullock, She's a beautiful woman. She's a gorgeous woman. But she has like a, a characteristic nose. Yes. Right? And I thought, isn't that dangerous for an actress or an actor if you have some characteristic feature to change it too much? Because, you know, for example, Jennifer Grey, she had a characteristic nose back in the 80s and then she had plastic surgery yes. and she just doesn't get any work anymore because she doesn't look like her, th- yes. the, the woman she's known for being in previous roles. Yes. Mm. And that's true. I mean, that's why, you know, uh, like like Renee Zellweger just had like that crazy surgery done yeah. now, and so she doesn't look anything like she's Lady Gaga doesn't look anything like she used to mm. ten years ago. It's just I just notice it like truffles. Truffles send out the essence to pigs that find them, and I am those pigs for plastic surgery. So if you are a truffle pig of plastic surgery, yeah. If I got plastic surgery, but I didn't, I decided I opted out of telling you. Mm-hmm. Would you bring it up, or would you wait for me to make the first move? I would be looking at you. <laughs> really hard because here's the problem is like it's like is it in my head is it in my head i have a fairly weird memory for the like good weird memory for those things so like but if someone's had something altered Mm. and i see that person frequently enough and they've had their like i always know when someone's had their haircut i always know when someone gets their eyebrows waxed i always know when someone changes something a little bit and i'm sorry i can just tell with celebrities so it's kind of it's a it's a sticking point for josh and i well, I want to get plastic surgery just to gaslight you with silence. That's fine. Just do it and then not tell you. Just, just shrug. torture you. Just shrug. <laughs> I'm going to be looking for like subtle bruising. <laughs> I'm glad you introduced this segment. What was it called again? The Kia song? I really like it. Oh, uh, my neck, my back, my buttocks, and my rack. Yeah. <laughs> I'm into that. Allison's Plastic Surgery Roundup. Thank you. Allison's Plastic Surgery Roundup. <laughs> I like the rap and then the country. It's a nice hiccup right there. Yeah. Hey, I'm with it. That's, chaka, 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 chaka. that's hey, what I Macarena. think. I just, I think it would, I think it's naive to think that people haven't had plastic surgery if they're in the limelight that often. Yeah, that's I, true. And it just depresses me that some of these women are just so beautiful, like, or men are beautiful and that aging is inevitable. And when they start to get plastic surgery over time, like fighting this uphill battle, they eventually all start to look like the same people. You know, oh. like, yes, yes, like for yes, example, yes. just to use an example, both have had lots of plastic surgery. Mickey Rourke kind of looks like Tawny Katane these oh. days. Yes. yes. Wow. They sort of yeah. look like the same person. Mm-hmm. And so that what what bums me out is when you mention, like, say, for example, uh, Alison Brie mm-hmm. or whomever. It's like you were so good looking before. Like, what's 
She's still smoking hot now. But but, but now she doesn't have that weird ass nose. She had. I'm just kidding. She, she was perfect before. <laughs> and that's, and that's what I'm saying. Is like was was the was this issue with your face such a big problem that it was actually a threat to your career? And it's easy for me to sit here listen, in this podcast and say these things. I understand that it's not my livelihood, but mm. I, think, I, I wonder. I think that things are so competitive right. that if you yeah. have a look and you were able to refine the look and you have the money to refine the look, I bet you're going to refine the look. If that's, I that's a fair point. If I had the money, I'd get rid of this. Yep. We call it the DeGrazio recess chin. Mm-hmm. This, uh, this. I'm going to put it on the microphone. This little double. Thing right here. <laughs> Let me snap a photo of. That. <laughs> Can you hear it? Yeah, that's that's my double chin right there that I'm wiping on the microphone. <laughs> wiping, you're oily. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Expressing the fungus. This is my microphone cover now. <laughs> Spores. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so uh <clears throat> that was perfect josh <laughs> fantastic <laughs> thank you very much outstanding This week's feature, Biker Movies Part 1, Sandy Harbutt's 1974 movie, Stone. Stone is a trip. And when you're on a bike, I mean a big bike, you've got all power, man. Diggers are on the move. A new breed of motorbike gang. That's why we're here, man. Together. Because when you're out there right, man, with the grave diggers, what can stop us, man? What can stop us? We own the world. They live in a fortress by the sea. Vietnam veterans. With their own style of life. Their own rules. <laughs> the grave diggers are on the move this is a synopsis so if you're worried about spoilers maybe tune this part out while at an environmental political demonstration toad a member of the grave diggers motorcycle club witnesses an assassin kill the environmental activist speaking the assassin realizes he's been spotted when toad runs away the assassin didn't see toad's face but did see the gang logo on his jacket Shortly thereafter, follow a series of bold killings of various members of the Gravediggers. A totally sick clothesline decapitation, a bombing, a rider being run off a cliff. Police inspector Hannigan sends in Stone, a motorcycle riding cop with undercover experience, to embed in the gang and investigate the killer. The gang dismisses Stone at first because he's a pig, guys. Ah, uh, Until he saves the life of a gang member from a crossbow bolt. The Gravediggers, <laughs> right? It's realistic. The grave diggers allow Stone to ride along and initiate him into the gang where they learn the power of friendship in motorcycles. <laughs> <laughs> the killer sets up grave diggers for a massacre, but the gang suspects as much and captures the assassin. Toad, 
who in the kerfluffle has been mortally wounded, identifies him as the assassin from the demonstration at which Stone defies the revenge-hungry gravediggers by rescuing him into police custody. And then something else happens I won't mention. Tee-hee-hee. <laughs> <laughs> so this is 1974. This is Australia. It's a really fantastic exploitation movie. Um, but they really borrow a lot of their origins from the biker traditions that were happening in the United States. And the the gang that was fundamental to making this movie was actually the Sydney branch of the Hells Angels. So in order to really understand bikers, we kind of have to roll the clock back quite a bit. I would say that for me personally, looking at biker films and biker history, Stone is about like the halfway point. It's sort of like the end of the first chapter, yeah. so to speak, okay. if we're going to talk about biker films. To go all the way back to the beginning, well, the beginning really is motorcycles are a blast to ride. They're great. They're so much fun. I highly recommend it. <laughs> 10 out of 10 stars. <laughs> the only thing more fun than riding by yourself is riding with your friends. Mm-hmm. So biker gangs and bi- motorcycle clubs are kind of a natural evolution of just the experience of owning one of these machines. So I don't. I think that if you want to find out where the first motorcycle clubs came from, is basically that the invention of motorcycles, literally like teenage boys who had strapped the the earliest internal combustion engines to their bicycles, riding them around in fields. Which is when, like nineteen oh five. Yeah. Okay. Like super early. In terms of like movie history and our cultural awareness of what biker films are or what bikers are in general. The real origin of that moment goes to 1947 in a little town in California called Hollister. Better than Abercrombie and Fitch. Well, I don't know. I only wear Levi's, bro. (laughs) I grew up an hour outside of Hollister. Oh, really? What's it like? Uh, It's just Cowtown. That's what I figured. Yeah, there's nothing going on. So Hollister was the location of an AMA, that's American Motorcycle Association, hosted rally. So it's like a a race, basically, Mm -hmm. like a race around town. A lot of the motorcycle clubs from the surrounding area were made of World War II vets that had, for various reasons, come yeah. together. They all love motorcycles. They love the adrenaline. They love camaraderie. Um, so they're there. The story that we're mostly told is that a single club called the Booze Fighters Motorcycle Club ran roughshod all over the town. There are only seven police in town. And there were all of these bikers. And the idea that was publicized was pandemonium and terrorism. But that's not really what happened. What really happened was the event was just way more popular than anyone anticipated. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so it's a tiny little town, as Allison mentioned. 4,000 people show up for the event. Oh my God. <laughs> and so the town was completely overrun. And it's all these biker dudes. And while they're rough and tumble guys, mostly they were just getting drunk and having a great time. They were having too much fun. They were occasionally getting into fights or occasionally breaking things or whatever, but nothing, nothing like was described. So there was no, no rape, no murder, nothing on fire. No, like the town wasn't destroyed, but that was the story that the newspapers all went with after the fact, (sighs) the quote unquote Hollister riot, the American Motorcycle Association, because of their association with the event that attracted all these people had to put out a statement. They said the trouble was caused by the 1% deviant that tarnishes the public image of both motorcycles and motorcyclists and that the other 99% of motorcyclists are good, decent, law-abiding citizens. Fuck the 1%. Occupy Hollister. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> there is a couple problems. Uh, the first problem is the AMA never actually made that statement. <laughs> so okay. the, it's the one percenter association of biker outlaws was actually an erroneous statement. No one really knows who made that statement. The AMA has gone through all their archives. It's accredited to them, but there's no record of anyone affiliated with their organization speaking for them or even issuing a statement on this. Steve Bannon's grandpa. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, so uh. the point is, is that Hollister wasn't a riot. It was just a slow news day. The AMA responded to the non-riot and essentially they created this, this newspaper born mythological figure of the motorcycle hoodlum, right? Yeah. So that's 1947. You roll the clock for a couple years, 1953. And there's basically a movie made about Hollister called The Wild One. Yes. Which I haven't seen mm -hmm. The Wild One in a long time, but I think you watched it recently, Brady, right? I did. I watched it a week ago and it was okay. Um, it was clear that they were trying to hang their hats on this sensationalist story as evidenced by the moralistic title card at the beginning, which I sent the two of you, right. which says, this is a shocking story. It could never take place in most American towns, <laughs> but it did in this one. It is a public challenge not to let it happen again. Oh boy. Very wholesome though. Like the title card, you know, it's, it's overcompensating for what is essentially a love story between a girl from the town and Marlon Brando who shows up and he's the, he's the wild stallion who can't be tamed. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. But she's the one who's the like bird in the cage who, you know, is attracted to his, I'm going to go into the women in these films. <laughs> <They're>... <laughs> there, wow. there is one woman though in the wild one. Her name is Britches. And she hangs with the bros and she's got a little tag that's stitched into her white old top. And she's she's uh, she's kind of like Joan Crawford in the in the in Johnny uh -huh. Guitar, like I say. Oh, yeah, she's, yeah, she's, yeah. She's one of the dudes a little. That's the one representation of a woman who's not serving beer or getting getting the runaround. Yeah, I was laughing that there was a description when it was talking about biker clubs when they were kind of. When, you know, maybe at tops, there'd be like 20, 30 people in a biker club at a time. But it was when these rallies were happening that suddenly if you have multiple clubs showing up, then you've got hundreds upon hundreds upon thousands of people that are showing up to these things. So, but I love how uh, basically in this article it was saying like, yeah, man, like these biker clubs would just show up, you know, maybe 20, 30 people tops. They'd play tug of war with their bikes. They'd have a barbecue. They'd do a little methamphetamine. <laughs> drink and then when the day was done they'd just go home and i was like I, they, like they mentioned it so casually like Nine so casually whatever I'm, <laughs> whatever like, i'm like yeah times times a thousand now i can i can see why there'd be some anxiety in hollister that explains some of the character's behavior because a lot of the hooliganism uh or tomfoolery of these bikers is the classic little child like i know you are but what am i kind of kind of humor, kind of snark. Right. It was that childish. With the wild one, essentially the the caricature of, this is the bad boy biker portrayed by Marlon Brando. We have our little poster image of who this guy is supposed to be. Yeah. And that was kind of like off and running. Most of the biker gangs after seeing this movie, they loved it. And they essentially just emulated themselves and their behavior after this. Whatever they were during their original formation before there was a movie made about them, they all started to pattern themselves after this. When we watched Judge Dredd, we all talked about the Versace uh, uniforms mm -hmm. yeah. of the judges. Yes. 
I get the sense that there was some sort of costume designer on the set of the wild one that gave them the, like the hats and the leather jackets and stuff like that. Am I off track or am I on track in terms of like the fashion of bikers well, coming from this I, movie? Or I was feel that- like, I feel like at what point does fiction get like, if you're, if you're coming up with like an idol, you yeah. know, so like you have a costume designer that's coming in like, Oh, we're doing bikers. At this time, there's a lot of hippies and counterculture associated with bikers. So we're going to do a lot of denim, uh, apparently a lot of Nazi symbolism, (laughs) and um, which we'll get into. Yeah. And we're going to and we're going to wrap these guys up in it and uh, or this kind of greaser look. This is when like fiction kind of becomes reality is people. People now are like, yeah, that's how I feel. That's how I want to be. That's who that's the person I feel like I am on the inside. Now you're costuming in order to fit into how you feel yeah. and if you have an example of it then so the classic motorcycle jacket definitely predates the wild one like that's that's a real jacket you know um langlet's leathers here in town they've been around for a million billion years and they've been producing jackets like that so it the fashion of the wild one was not invented for the movie but kind of talking about what allison's saying it there was probably a, a fashion designer on set who was essentially picking and choosing optimizing outfits in order to like craft the character so mm-hmm. In other words, like the little hat, leather jackets, all that stuff existed before the movie. It's just, it was assembled. Yeah. The only part of the costume that I am super dumbfounded about is the hat. Yeah. Is that like a naval, it almost looks like a naval or military hat. I believe that the nearest military base near Hollister, from which probably a lot of these guys would be from, is actually Marine Corps base. So it wouldn't surprise me if that was kind of like a little, uh, what they would call a skipper hat. Got it. So that's that's my guess. Although I'm sure that hat has a name and I'm I'm botching it right now. And I now. mean like we'll get into this too, but wasn't the biker community ended up being kind of like a spilling over for a lot of World War II veterans. Totally. So it wouldn't it wouldn't be too out of the ordinary to have a lot of that like uniform left over for these men to be riding around in. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Nowadays it's even true nowadays. Like the sort of there are so many different subsets of bikers. There are so many different people that ride bikes worldwide. It's hundreds of biker scenes. But when we think of the biker, we're thinking of typically the classic American biker who rides a Harley Davidson, who's got the leather jacket and all the other sort of um, cartoonish paraphernalia, right? Mm -hmm. The reason why they're so obsessed with riding Harley Davidsons as to your military connection is because as World War II veterans, they refused to ride anything that was made by an Axis nation. So Japanese motorcycles were out. German motorcycles were out. They would only be riding Harley Davidsons or perhaps an English-made motorcycle. And I want to go back to this because it also, the costuming and the symbolism and how a lot of the trophies that were brought back from World War II, which ended up going onto their outfits, I think that that's interesting that they would be so against German bikes or Japanese bikes, but still be wearing like... Nazi well, they, regalia. Well, that, that was more like a trophy collecting. So okay. like, it wouldn't surprise me if like a lot of these guys from back in the war, particularly in the immediate post-war era, would have been fashioned with like, would have had like an iron cross or some other like Japanese symbolism. Uh, we had watched Wild Angels and I was, I was kept getting taken out of the film because there's so much Nazi regalia in the movie. Uh, and... And then I really had to settle down with you. You need to view the movie for when it was set or when it's supposed to be set. That's better, Johnny. You know, I missed you. Ever since the club split up, I missed you. We all missed you. Did you miss them? Yeah. Yeah. The Beatles missed you. All the Beatles missed you. Come on, Johnny. 
Let's you and me go inside and have a beer, and I'll be delivering Christmas out of you. Johnny, for old times. Oh, don't take that away from Chino. It's so beautiful. Chino needs it. Makes Chino feel like a big, strong man. Yeah, Chino wants to be a big racetrack hero, all these girls. Power! Advance the clock like a couple years. You've got Rebel Without a Cause. A couple years later, you've got On the Road with Dean Moriarty. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're getting with between Rebel Without a Cause and On the Road, even though it's a, it's a book, it's not like a movie yet, yeah. um, is you're kind of getting the cultural and intellectual backfill of the kind of ideas that sort of the biker has come to represent. So you're getting the sort of the story of the biker, the ideas of the biker, this like sense of wanderlust, this lack of purpose. Who am I? What does it all mean? And this rejection, this aesthetic rejection of commercialism in lieu of experiences. Listening to some of the, the dialogue from Wild Angels sounds like I'm reading on the road. Mm-hmm. Like like I'm, I'm listening to a dumb person's version of <laughs> quoting on the road. The like, Inceptions because, or the yeah, Christopher the, Nolan version the of... The Inception fan version of, <laughs> of On the Road. You keep moving forward and keep it in the back of your mind that all the bikers who have come out of during the 50s who basically heard about Hollister, who have seen the wild one, are emulating that Marlon Brando character. Like they're just getting rougher around the edges as time goes on. The biker clubs, they're not necessarily made out of shit bags, but they do attract shit bags for a reason. You have to understand that these are people that they are seeking acceptance and they're seeking acceptance in groups that are wild enough to deal with them. A lot of them have uh, emotional problems, like either baggage because they're, they're war experiences. And they're looking for groups that will tolerate their crazy behavior. Often PTSD, PTSD for, yeah. for sure. More. But yeah. it also it also seems like they are looking for a culture that is extremely structured. And despite mm-hmm. bikers seeming lawless, they have very principled natures about them that have to yeah. do with well, respect it's and rituals their own, and, their own yeah. yeah they have the, they have working. their own internal culture yeah. and there is definitely um a discipline inside like biker culture if you're in a serious one percenter club for sure and there are some rules like we were watching like with stone for example that there are some rules that i would not have done that unless i was ready to die yeah <laughs> <laughs> because there's some some serious lines to get crossed. Um, yeah, big moment that you have to take all of that context and roll it up to is the Lynch report in 1964. Now, all of us we all know who the Hell's Angels are these days, right? But back in the day, no one really knew who the Hell's Angels were until 1964. 1964, there's a document called the Lynch report, which was issued by the Attorney General of the State of California. And it was brought about through a number of small complaints, all these small complaints, but they all kind of added up a lot of brawling, drug use. It really came to a head at a 1964 Labor Day weekend Monterey Bay double rape case. Bleak. Bleak. Yeah. Where Hells Angels were accused of raping two underage girls. And after that, it, it did two things. Number one, it lit up law enforcement to where they were not just thinking of this like vague Marlon Brando motorcycle yeah. hooligan. They were looking at like these Hell's Angel scumbags, mm-hmm. right? The other thing is, there's no such thing as bad press. And if you're if all you care about is being tough and having respect on the street, then this Lynch report yeah. elevated your position amongst right bad dudes. It's a perverted form of respect. Exactly. Yeah. Roger Corman seized on this whole idea and the sort of 
news coming out and basically made a movie about it. 1966, The Wild Angels. It was way better than I thought it was going to be. It was, yeah, it was a good movie. And also way more interesting. Like yes. it wasn't a lot of biker propaganda kind of drifts towards like, oh, he's an anti-hero, but he's fighting a corrupt system. Or like he's a bad dude amongst other bad dudes, but he's doing the right thing here and now. And that's not what that movie was. Corman was a sneaker wave of a director. He definitely was. Yeah. Like, like it felt almost like a French new wavy, like yeah. existentially yeah, kind of. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You, your heart breaks for Peter Fonda at one point, mm-hmm. especially that that last scene in the church where you kind of we were like, oh man, like you're running from a lot of pain and you're running with a pack of people who are also running from pain. Yeah. And uh and no one's no one's addressing anything. So it's just chaos. Mm-hmm. It was sad. It was really sad, but I was really surprised by the movie. I, I at first I thought it was kind of kind of be this kind of like glory on the road film and then mm-hmm. we get through it and you're like, "Oh, this is this is powerful. This is yeah. This is heartbreaking." Cool. Yeah. It was uh again, uh Peter Fonda, Bruce Dern, Nancy Sinatra, Diane Ladd. Uh, at that point, it was the most successful low-budget movie ever made. They made it for like I think like three hundred thousand dollars, and it made seven million, which is which is amazing. But essentially, it proved. I mean, like you're Roger Corman, like motorcycles, what do they cost? Motorcycles are cheap. Costumes are cheap. You're filming outside, like it's it's all cheap, and it's it's a story that sells. So from like a uh, profitability point, it's it's excellent. The movie itself, it pivots away from like the simplistic hero structure and, and creates this like existential dread, even if the movie is itself like with the party scene and towards the end is like really indulgent, mm-hmm. like kind of like full of itself, maybe a little bit. Uh, Corman captures this view of like these dim-witted, juvenile, young, rapey nihilists uh, who basically abandon everything they can and they run away from everything they can until finally Peter Fonda, who's the, the leader of the gang, can't run away from something. Yeah. Right. Just to kind of fill in the blanks as somebody who hasn't seen it, it seems like the classic Corman, like putting butts in seats. He's got to put something in the trailer footage to sneak in this like artsy fartsy movie. That's like exactly right. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly okay. it. So okay. the caveat is basically there's a there's a biker gang that's extremely close to the Hell's Angels or based on the Hell's Angels, and they get into some kind of kerfluffle with uh, recovering a bike back from a shop they suspect has stolen it and and broken it down for parts, like a chop shop. Bruce Stern steals a police motorcycle to get away. Mm-hmm. The police give chase. They shoot him. He's terribly injured, but he doesn't die. He goes to the hospital, but the cop that shot him got into a bad accident and died. Bruce Stern's character, even if he survives the hospital, is definitely going to jail forever. They bust him out of the hospital. They bust him out of the hospital, yeah. Mm. So he leaves the hospital and he dies like in the, in the gang's presence. And the rest of the movie is them just trying to give him a, a funeral service and a burial. But meanwhile, the gang is basically like falling apart or they're made of such shit bags that they kind of don't care about the right things. Well, it's, it's mm-hmm. not it's, it's like if you had deeply emotionally troubled young men who are coming together to support each other. And initially, like that is that is a brotherhood that is a tremendous support. And the fact that they can allow each other to explode in these emotional ways and still be accepted but what happens when the when the thin structure that's in line breaks down because now Peter Fonda's character is not coping with anything whatever they stand for is eroding now that yeah. Bruce Stern's character has died so this party scene that they have or the celebration and the funeral that they have for Bruce Stern's character is literally the display of how thinly veiled the order and the respect is within 
this group. There is no respect. They don't care about boundaries. They're not working through their pain. They're they're literally <laughs> and that's, raping and, and and that's kind mm-hmm. of like where it goes. It's like so I mentioned earlier before, like the um, a rebel without a cause and on the road, and all of that sort of like free form Dharma bum. I'm going to be a drifter and a traveler, and it's all about my human experience, not about material possessions. A lot of that assumes best intent. But like, what if right. you have malintent? What if you have that kind of, I'm a drifter, I'm completely unmoored from any kind of moral attachments or ideas. And I'm not, I'm not doing it for the benefit of humanity. I'm doing it for selfish or personally destructive reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of where the gang goes at the end. And this is what makes Wild Angels like way more like a smarter movie yeah. is that it's not about the glorification of the gang. Like they're all shitheads, but Peter Fonda is the only one at the end who even realizes it. Mm. So if you've seen this movie and it does get referenced quite a bit, there's a point where this like preacher guy gives Peter Fonda's character, whose name is like Heavenly Blues or something like that. <laughs> Gives them like this total softball question. Yeah, we don't want nobody telling us what to do. We don't want nobody pushing us around. I apologize. But tell me, just what is it that you want to do? We want to be free. We want to be free to to do what we want to do. We want to be free to ride. We want to be free to ride our machines without being hassled by the man. And we want to get loaded. Yeah. And we want to have a good time. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to have a good time. We're going to have a party. I was trying to go in. I remember a long time ago reading an article about what draws certain people to extremist groups. And I'm not... Sense of community. Exactly. They, only, so they need to fit in somewhere. You, you have a lot of um, lost, listless young men who don't... They're lacking confidence and they're lacking self-worth and they're lacking power. And so they are drawn in to communities where that's given back to them, but with... Uh, with anger behind it. There's no um, moral compass behind it. I remember this coming out a long time ago that was specifically how young men got wrapped up into white supremacist groups mm-hmm. specifically. And I'm not I'm not associating that with, with biker clubs, though I know well, that can be a thing. I know that can absolutely be yeah. a thing. But um, but that it's just one of those things where the, the fraternal aspect of it, I think, is so appealing. But if there's not a strong, strong presence to be navigating what's happening, I think it breaks down very quickly. I think with bikers in particular, the sense of community also comes from the artifice of aesthetic, right? So you have the clothing but that we've talked about, but also the rituals, right? Right. The initiation processes. Yep. And like the the sort of bylaws and the sort of standards inside the group. The whole movie is absolutely bathed in Nazi imagery. So like there's swastikas, there's the the Bruce Dern's character wears like a little Luftwaffe, like Iron leather Eagle. leather hat, Iron Eagles everywhere, Kriegsmarine, swastika flags just everywhere. At this point, um, and Dick Miller as a oil rig worker shows up for just a second. The garbage help. man. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. From, yeah from Joe Dante's verbs. favorite. Yes, our boy. So he shows up for just a second, but the whole movie is bathed in this Nazi imagery. And it means a very different thing than the little iron crosses or little uh, totems that you would find on sort of like the OG, like 1947 Mm -hmm. bikers. Yeah, These guys, they didn't fight in World War II. Maybe some of them fought in Korea, but these are mostly the kids of the people or the kids that were growing up around World War II. 
the reason for the Nazi imagery, and I recognize that this is an extremely narrow needle to thread here, is not necessarily, not explicitly racist stuff, although that does show up. Of course it does. Absolutely. But it's the idea that there are there is this surge of counterculture energy. If the American flag and Superman are the good guys, they represent themselves as the bad guys. And so they've donned the imagery of the bad guys, which yep. is the reason why Iron Crosses and swastikas are all over by and, and this And as an example of this that's more a little more palatable for some of our listeners to understand is the Sex Pistols. Right. And early, early punk rock, this uh, swastikas, I, Iron Crosses, things like that were also donned frequently to be a slap in the face for the older community and uh, saying that like, fuck you, we're, we're counterculture, we're doing our own thing, we're lawless. It didn't at that time link directly to racism. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard, especially with how things are today. To, it's it's to, jarring. It's bracing to it's, watch the movie when you see like so. all of this like Nazi imagery. Extremely it's, so. Like it but really comes at you. But mm-hmm. it's like for where we are today, for me, it was almost impossible to separate the meaning of those symbols as I know them now to what they meant 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. It was really difficult for me. And I ke- it kept really bothering me throughout the movie. There's quite a bit of it too in stone. It shows up. Yeah, it definitely shows up. So, so Wild Angels basically forms like the prototype of the of the mid to late 60s biker movie. A lot of movies that come out after it are either in response to Wild Angels or kind of like backfilling in on it. Roger Corman, innovator, he basically proved that the outlaw biker gang movie model worked commercially. From 1960 to 1966, there were exactly four biker films. From 1966 to 1969, there were 35 biker films. <laughs> From 1970 to 1980, there were 75 biker films. So there's too many titles to talk about. There's a lot of good ones. There's a lot of bad ones. Wild Angels was uh, a focus point because not only did it like really kind of nail the image of what late 60s bikers were going to be, but it also proved the point that commercially as, as biker films, what they were moving on. Yeah. The clock advances a little bit more. We get to Easy Rider. I haven't seen it. I'm sorry. I was going to watch it today before Josh got home and I got all wrapped up doing my French lessons. Sorry, (laughs) everyone. I failed. But I was reading an article, you know, just to brush up on biker history and someone just like slapped the ending in my face and I haven't had a spoiler alert in a long time like that. Whoopsie poopsies. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't really think of Easy Rider as a biker film. No. Because it's not a biker gang film. It's basically hippies on motorcycles. Yeah. And it's also mostly tracking on uh, like an old West kind of thing. Like the, both the characters are named after like Billy the Kid or... Yeah, and Jack Nicholson's character is somebody who is rejecting the status quo and coming into counterculture. So you have enough representation of like standard life with him being kind of assimilated into this group. So it's kind of doing its own thing. Right. And that's partially why it was so successful and it still holds up today mm. is that it's kind of representing the entire zeitgeist of 1967 or 68 the spectrum of that generation through these different archetypes. I fully agree. Yeah. But so it, it gets lobbed out there because it's basically dudes on motorcycles, but I don't really think of it in the same sense of um, stone or wild angels. Yeah. Simultaneously to all of the growth of biker culture in the United States, um, there were other organizations, basically bikers would come here or our bikers would go there and start parallel organizations. So, the movie that we covered, Stone. <laughs> I'm just envisioning. I'm just envisioning bikers going on a ferry, 
slowly across the ocean, taking weeks to get to Australia. <laughs> We're importing the Hell's Angels. That's right. <laughs> or exporting the Hell's well, Angels. Well, that's that's the thing is that at this point in the in the mid mid sixties, the Hell's Angels had a big enough brand where people wanted to be, they didn't want to like start their own club. They wanted to go be Hell's Angels Mm -hmm. because it established like what it was in such a strong way. The Sydney branch of the Hell's Angels is essentially what Stone is based on. And you don't have to look too hard to look at the logo of the grave diggers and their backpacks to see see it leaking through. But what's with the hat though? Is that like an Australian? Yeah. So, oh, so the, I love, I'm sorry. I love that patch so much. I think it's so yeah. badass. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. The, the patch referring to here is the, with the slouch hat and the skull. And that's the back patch that the grave diggers wear on their cut. It's so good. And the slouch hat is basically a reference to the same thing. So in Australia, a digger is a, is a nickname for a veteran. In other words, a grave digger, a person who's killed other people. It's also really loving that they call bikers Bikies. Bikies. And I thought that that was <laughs> like, listen, Australia is like, is like wild America 4.0. Mm-hmm. But I do love that some of the slang uh, that we have versus what they have is just like. A little different. But also I'd be, I'd be afraid to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> it's my bikey gang. <laughs> the slouch hat is basically another military reference uh, because you put the hat up so that you can put your rifle up against your face. Ah, yeah, yes. It, like, like the dude in Jurassic Park shooting the Velociraptors. Yeah, there, you gets go. Fucking yeah, flanked. yeah there you go. It's such a great image. You want, yeah. like, you want a wide brim hat because it's sunny out, but you got to get part of the brim out of the way so you can shoot your gun. Mm. Sandy Arbit basically got this movie started by getting a grant from the Australian Film Council. At that point, that was like a brand new thing. Like no one had really done this. Sandy Harbutt had done some TV work, but he hadn't done any movies. This is his first movie. He had an idea for a script and he talked to some people. He owned a Triumph motorcycle and he talked to the people he talked to said, oh yeah, go down to this club at this time and you'll run into these folks. And he basically ran into and hung out with a bunch of Sydney Hells Angels and essentially just developed the script from there into what this became. It's fucking wild. Australia is often just as, if not more conservative than the United States. And with this, yes. I mean, in terms of their censorship laws, like with video games, also the film in in the early 70s, this was very progressive. For violence or for boobies? Yes. Because I feel like they're (laughs) very liberal with boobies. Uh, Around this time, yes. Okay. Uh, But yeah, definitely violence language. For sure. Really? Yeah. Um, the it's not it's not my favorite documentary, but it does a really good job. Um, not quite Hollywood. Oh, the documentary. Yeah. Yeah, I keep meaning to see this. I haven't seen. Yeah, it. Yeah, they do a really nice job of hop skipping and jumping around the late sixties, early seventies, and how the Australian government decided to invest in a number of these independent filmmakers, and it was like one or two people in the Australian government who decided to kick against the pricks. Hey. Um, kick. Kick against the pricks. Because uh, I, I thought even even for this film, uh, for 74, you still had way more blood. And the severed head in the beginning was just... Awesome. Was just yeah. wonderful. Like, wonderful. Uh, and especially, like, at the end of the movie, you know, when that who shall not be named gets, like, fucking kicked to death. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the, the gore on that oh, yeah. was outstanding. Mm-hmm. So I'm surprised. I mm-hmm. thought it. I th- I was really excited because I was like, "Oh, thank God!" Because I wouldn't do this in an American movie of the same time mm-hmm. frame. Well, maybe they would. Maybe seventy four. Exorcist. Th- you're right. I think maybe they would. 
to the point of this being kind of like a chancy progressive thing. I think it was because a lot of people who saw this movie, and one of the reasons why it has enduring popularity in Australia for sure, is because it was definitely speaking uh, counterculture points in a way that was connecting with the audience. So a lot of movies up to this point hadn't really dealt with the idea of like, oh, well, if you keep shooting people overseas, they keep putting males on you. And if you stop, well, then they're going to put you in jail. Like that, uh-huh. that kind of message. Or mm-hmm. some of the drug sequences. Obviously, uh, Hugh Key's bar- burn in the very beginning um, is like, I don't know if he's tripping Probably or on LSD. mushrooms, yeah. LSD. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When he's going through the sequence with the environmental demonstration, like that's like a, that was interesting. And the whole uh, non-voice sequence where they're storytelling uh, yeah, back at I, the fort. I really, that was a very special way to do that. That was, that was directed very well in my Agreed. opinion. They uh, were, were in their little bunker. They're all sharing a joint and they're all expressing why or how they found the group, yeah. but some of it's verbal and some of it's just the thoughts that they're having that they all can connect with. It's like voiceover narration. And then halfway through their little statement, they start actually saying it on camera, if that makes sense. And I thought that was very clever. Mm-hmm. That was very sweet. Yeah. I really enjoyed that part as well. In fact, I would say that think some of the more special parts of the movie and generally are just like how the, the group is communicating with each other. Like Stone as an outsider and as a policeman, he's obviously not going to be super welcome. But they go through essentially the whole process of him being inducted into the gang for realsies as if he was like a prospect trying to get in. Which seemed tame. It just seemed, from what I've heard about entering a biker gang or entering a gang in general, it seemed not the worst. No, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And also, that's another thing is this the gang as presented does not really feel like a one percenter gang to me. Mm-hmm. This feels like maybe like a two or three percenter gang. I didn't get that impression either. Because even though they have guns and even though they get into a fight with like the construction guy at the bar that one time, like they're not out there like killing people, dealing no. drugs. They're, they're not like w- the worst. Right. And for all intents and purposes, the cop, aka Stone, that they initiate into the gang might as well be Siegfried from Siegfried and Roy. Oh my God. He's got this very theatrical look to him yeah. that it's, like sticks out like a sore thumb. It's like Australian John Travolta. It's totally, crazy. totally. Or like oh, wow. Fabio. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I can see the Siegfried and Roy. He's, he's very like, you know, like sharply defined featured man. But also I thought he was wearing a wig for a very long time. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, when he first came out and I was like, he looks like Prince Valiant. Like, what yes, exactly. Is like, what yes. is that here? Well, they, I mean, like the symbolism is pretty thin there. Where basically he shows up to the first bike meetup, like dressed completely in white, because he's like <laughs> yeah, the white exactly. knight showing up to hang out with yeah. like all the riffraff. There was a lot of thinly veiled symbolism in the movie. Yeah, totally. But it was fun. Yeah, uh, Ken Shorter, the lead actor who plays Stone, he was previously a police officer. Hell like, yeah. He was uh, really into leather at that point. Hell yeah. And his pants and his shirt and his suspenders and all his like leather outfit, it was all made by him. Like he made his own oh clothes. My God, what a fucking nerd. Uh, Sandy Harbit, the, <laughs> the movie director who also plays The Undertaker, he designed all the costumes, he designed the logos, all that stuff. Yeah. Ken could be my leather daddy. There you go. Ugh. Yeah, not a fan he's, either. He's a. Nah, he is a unique. Yes. Looking. Yes. Individual. Yes. Somebody somewhere finds him aesthetically pleasing. I'm certain a lot of <laughs> I'm certain a lot of babes in the seventies did. Two of the three people on this podcast apparently don't find him
during the sequence where the gravediggers get into a fight with the Blackhawks, most yeah. of the Blackhawks are the Hells Angels, the real Hells Angels. Makes sense. But they were paid for in beer That's um, and pills. And uh, so when you see them come in a little hot and crash their bikes at the very beginning, that was real. That's great. It's all real. That's great. You but, called that immediately too. You were like, what happened there? That that's they just, decided, they just decided to keep it in. Yeah, yeah that Clearly. happened for real. It's like, it's too much hassle to get these guys to like get on their bikes all at <laughs> once. Go back out to the skyline. Go back, yeah, go back around the block and then come back in and try it again. Like, yeah, nah, just, just keep the crash yeah. in there. It's, yeah. it's more fun that way. The choice of motorcycles is pretty drool worthy in general. The motorcycles that the gravediggers ride are Kawasaki Z1 900s. So Japanese. Japanese, exactly. And so this kind of shows that in addition to like the sort of communal culture that they have, you know, living at the seaside fort by themselves and the drug use, that they are also, they're evolving in ways that some of the other gangs are like reluctant to do so. So for example, the Black Hawk gang, they all have English bikes. They have like Nortons and Triumphs and Mm -hmm. BSAs. The gravediggers are almost universally Kawasaki Z1s. They're putting the the past behind them in terms of like the whole, we won't ride a Japanese motorcycle. And the guy calls it Jap crap, kicks it over and all that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what's notable about the Z1 is that it was the fastest motorcycle produced at that point. The uh, Vincent Black Lightning basically held the overall speed record for many, many years. So I don't know, there's this famous photo, I don't know if you've seen it, of the this guy and he's wearing a Speedo and he's laying... <laughs> Flat on a motorcycle, and he's got his hands on the bars. Yes, I know what you're talking about. Going across the Bonneville Salt Flats. Yep. The rider's name is his name's Raleigh Free. Yeah. And the motorcycle he's on is a Vincent Black Lightning because for many years that was the fastest motorcycle ever made. Yeah. But then the Kawasaki uh, Z1 came out in '73, and apparently, if you were a grave digger, you wanted to have the most powerful machine available at the time. That's cool. Yeah. I'm curious if they drove this off the cliff. There's that scene where one of, you know, they're offing the the bikers one by one. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure the one where the bike is going off the cliff. Yeah. Isn't that Grant Page? Isn't that Stunt Rock homeboy? Hell. Probably. Probably. Wasn't that like I don't know. Okay. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Actually, but also it's Australia. Like every other guy is like a I know. Man. I actually wanted to go into this at some point. Uh, Sandy Harbutt was involved with a film called Action, a look at the film industry through eyes of a stuntman. <laughs> <laughs> Which made me think about our our Thanksgiving together uh-huh. where we all watch Stunt Rock. Yeah. And it seems like every Australian ever is a stuntman. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's kind of like Russians and hackers. It's not so much that <laughs> it's, not, it's not that all hackers are Russian. It's just that all Russians are hackers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think Australians like they just grow up like you know riding horses and motorcycles and jumping off cliffs and stuff. Like, I do get the sense though, Grant Page was very special as evidenced by that movie. Oh yeah, and that stunt seems exceptional to me. Of riding a motorcycle off of a 150 foot cliff 150 mm-hmm. feet is about as high as you can really go and in the ocean and to be perfectly honest like with the motorcycle that is so sketch because if you just like tumble wrong the motorcycle is going to land on you yeah. and you're, you're dead duck yeah mm. so he like landed a few feet ahead of it so there was some yeah as it was falling probably some sort of leaping that, from yeah that man's body I just don't understand. Do you think he has any cartilage left? I don't think so. But also he looks like the cooler version of like one of the Bee Gees. <laughs> yes, totally. Like the totally. Bee Gees that I wanted to listen <laughs> yes. to. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the one stunt that stuck out to me. And mm-hmm. I obviously they skidded out a few times and I right. definitely winced, even though I'm not really into motorcycles. I winced 
because they did a good job of highlighting that these are special motorcycles. Yeah. So to see them skid out, I was like, ooh, that's that's not cool. I did also knowing nothing about motorcycles when they were talking, uh, when Stone is talking to one of the bikers about their race that they had. And Stoney's like, oh, yeah, when my when my back wheel came up, I knew. And I was like, that's that's like talk with people that know what the fuck they're talking about. Yeah. Yep. And that's kind of the charm of this movie is that uh, there are certain aspects where it all kind of falls apart, but there are certain aspects where you know that it's like, it's not just that a screenwriter or a director, it's like everybody who's in front of the camera like knows what they're talking about. What impressed me a little bit is that in the sequence where Stone is racing Captain Midnight uh, and then he and ends up like low siding on like the le- very last turn of the race, mm-hmm. like both uh, whomever the stuntman was, if it wasn't Ken Shorter or someone else, and Ken Shorter, like immediately, they're trying to pull the handlebars back into position and trying to get the cable back because they're in their mind, they're trying to finish the race. Like that, it's like a, it's a total like reflex thing where when you wipe out on your bike, you just want to get back up and keep going. Yeah. And uh, it felt extremely authentic to me. Mm. I've been there. <laughs> back when Josh and I were talking on Bumble, mm-hmm. one of Josh's photos is of him doing like an extreme lean while racing on a scooter. Oh yeah. And I saw that photo yeah. and I was like, fuck no. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Good to know. I was like, I was like, no, this guy's going to be like a motorcycle, motocross meathead piece mm-hmm. of crap. Mm-hmm. I'm You're pretty so right. And I'm pretty sure that I declined. Yeah. And then, but, he, and then he showed up again. But given your upbringing with music, like there is a Venn diagram of like, goths and like power man 5000 what are Rob you Zombie saying about motorcycle. my music Brady are you saying based on our conversation last week that had my mom agreed I may or may not have a limb biscuit tattoo right now yeah and I could see I could see do you want me to like grow this out into like a like a Wayne static can you like? can you braid it please like anthrax yeah it'll take a little Hell moment take yeah. a moment yeah we can get there I'll take that as an agreement on this no, Venn diagram. I, but again, it was it was a bad assumption of mine. Obviously, it worked out. Hey, yeah, that all seemed to work out in the end. Hey, babe. Yeah, how's it going? I like your red. Oh, okay. <laughs> vroom, vroom, Josh. Uh, I got some. I got some coconut oil. Yeah, it's ready to go. Cheers, Brady. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> When the movie came out in Australia, it basically crushed the box office everywhere it went. People came out, like either the counterculture message or like the drug message or maybe the nudity or maybe just like motorcycles and motorcycle gangs, but it was a hit in Australia. At that point, because of when it premiered in the year, Sandy Arbut and the Australian like culture ministers were kind of getting ready for the movie festival season. So they basically kept it inside Australia for a couple of months until Cannes came around. Stone faced major distribution challenges because the Film Council of Australia went through a high-level reorganization after the film had been filmed. Basically, the people who financed the film wanted nothing to do with it after its release and subsequent panning by critics. Yeah. So the critics were like establishment people, like old, I mean, I won't say fuddy-duddies, but basically they weren't in on like the culture. They didn't maybe understand it in like the sort of modern lens and they hated it. And, so, I, and film critics at the time in Australia, I mean, it, it was a small group of gatekeepers. Right. Right. Because yeah. like film criticism in the US went through its own kind of vanguard. Mm. Um, and they were a little bit behind. Not I, by many years, but just a few. I was I was actually really surprised about how difficult it was for them to have this movie uh, distributed. It was a fight. Basically, yeah. the, the Australian film ministers or film council or whatever 
refused to take it to the movie festivals where it could seek it could seek a larger audience and get basically distribution deals in other places. So they didn't take it to Cannes the first year. Sandy Arbit eventually had to resort to essentially stealing a 35 millimeter print of the film and finding ways to get in front of audiences so that he could sign deals independent. That's some Tom Petty shit. Of the the minister or the ministry in order to gain marketing steam on the ground because bikers universally love this movie. He would oftentimes go to wherever the film film festival was going to be in advance. And he would show the movie to like a, he would invite a group of bikers to come out, show the movie for them and then basically get them to accompany him to the festival in mass during the uh, smart, super smart during the funeral sequence in stone. uh, He did basically the same thing where he invited the community uh, out and they had 400 people on motorcycles show up and they all kind of did their thing. They all, they all stayed in formation. They all like did exactly as they were told, no craziness, no stupidity. They just got the whole thing done. And essentially he took that, that moment, that experience with them, on the road to promote cool. the film. And eventually, over time, in spite of the direction that the Australian film ministry wanted to go, which was towards more of a highbrow, less of a lowbrow yeah. way of making movies, he was able to get distribution deals in Japan and Germany. I just, I don't even think it's that lowbrow of a movie. I thought it, I thought it's just a really good alternative to popular. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I didn't think it was lowbrow. No, no. It's I, a great story. I think it's, I think it's a great movie. Yeah. I think that what makes this movie great for me personally are all like the small touches like yeah. the little things like the intangibles yeah. that are immaterial to like the story yeah i agree the intangible that really stuck out to me was the music it was all over the place it was synth it was psych rock it was like kind of proto metal it was great it was, it was so good. folk rock like weird experimental stuff stuff with like like a power not a yeah kind of a power ballad or like a like yeah. a anthem yeah, like sure. anthem and the scat man yeah <laughs> <laughs> So regardless of the images, it, it is one of those movies that if you're really into music, you could just kind of get lost in the music because it is so uh, varying and, and has such a broad aesthetic to it. Yeah, I, I uh, there's that whole scene. So after we have that scene where they're all smoking pot together and they're sharing their story of how they met up. Uh, in the morning, they all go out and swim in the ocean together. And the music that's playing in that is is beautiful. It's like. Cool. Not, not quite Spanish guitar, but like mm-hmm. this really, really beautiful plucked guitar. And it was just really, really emotional and sweet. Um, the music fit perfectly scene for scene. It was it was uh, really, really well done. Well curated. And I don't know much about the composer. His name is Billy Green on Discogs, which is like the record collecting website. It has this bio where it says that he went on to like lead a bunch of bands. But then I went, go, went to go look for like music released by him and... I couldn't find any, so I'm assuming like he's the one that made the bio, but like nothing was ever created. Oh, okay. Uh, from a recording standpoint, one of the bio facts was that he played saxophone on the 82nd floor of the Empire State Building or something like that. Like that was one of his main go- gigs, like okay. on the mezzanine of the 82nd floor. What's going on? I don't know. <laughs> fuck, fuck if I know, but yeah, just for making such an iconic soundtrack, it it's weird that he kind of faded away. On a related note, uh, Sandy Arbutt never made any more movies. And it was, you know, I, I watching this movie, you can kind of tell it's his first movie or you can see like some of the rough edges, some of the seams. But there's enough in the can, enough on screen where like, why didn't this guy get any more movies? Yeah. He did some television before he made this mm-hmm. thing. And I thought that Stone was definitely enough of a an, an introduction into the film world where like, why didn't he make any more? And 
I also know that maybe some of that is because the film got bogged down with whatever this conflict was between him and the film ministry. But again, it's like, there's enough movies getting made. Like we all saw Rhino back or Razorback. <laughs> Rhino back. <laughs> we all saw Razorback. I'm like, they're making movies. Like what's, mm-hmm. what's the problem here? Yeah. So the producer, uh, David Hannaway, who worked with uh, Harbert on Stone, said that the most negative experience he had as a filmmaker in his career over the three decades was not being able to get financing for Harbert to make other films. Oh, man. Right? What a bummer. Uh, It broke my heart when I read that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, obviously, if you're a big Mad Max fan, you know, Hugh Keyes Byrne will stand out like a sore thumb as the Toad character. I didn't realize that he came from like a Shakespearean background. <laughs> and that's, that's another thing that stands so out amazing. in this movie is that <laughs> there's all these like greasy, sweaty, like just, you know, they look like bikers. Yeah. And they're all actors. Like they're, they're all come from yeah. film or TV or whatever. Uh-huh. Like they're not, they're not real quote unquote bikers. Yeah, yeah. They're film actors. But it seemed like they kind of became bikers, so to speak. Like, I think they all seem to really fall in love with the lifestyle and the code. And so they all became, at least they all became like motorcyclists. Afterwards. Yeah, no, no, definitely. And you can definitely spot like uh, the motorcycling ability of the actors who couldn't, couldn't ride. Like the other night, like we were trying to watch um, uh, CC and company or whatever oh, with Joe Namath. No. Yeah. And Joe Namath is like visibly struggling with the <laughs> chopper that he's on top of. And, and don't get me wrong. <laughs> choppers are kind of tough to ride at first, mm. but like he's, he's struggling. <laughs> I can never, I can never look at Joe Namath and not think about the time that he was just completely blitzed and like drunk talking to the gal trying to interview him. Yeah. Like what was that in the nineties or eighties or nineties? Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Like I just always say, I haven't seen this clip. He's so hot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to him. Hey, well he got obliterated and had his legs broken earlier in his life. So I don't blame him for being blitzed. When did his legs get broken? That's fucking crazy. Well, probably when he's quarterback. Yeah. <gasps> when he got blitzed in football, Allison. Oh, hey. that kind of blitz. Oh, <laughs> nice, Brady. I didn't get it. Thank you. That was that was slick. Thanks for pointing out my pun. That'll that was make- good. No, I had to because I didn't get it. <laughs> I believe uh, everything that anyone else has watched uh, Chad play. Uh, Impresses me the same thing impresses them. What does it mean to you now when the team is struggling? <laughs> I want to kiss you. I couldn't care less about the team struggling. The guy, uh, Roger Ward, who's like the big guy with like the little yeah. hat, um, plays a character named Hooks. Uh, apparently, like during the big brawl scene with the Blackhawks, like he was going to swing on the other guy <laughs> uh, who was a Hell's Angel, but he didn't because if he actually punched the guy, then it might have turned into a brawl for realsies mm-hmm. because they're sensitive, fragile male egos. And, well, no. And then that guy from the Hells Angels was like, he's like, I, I saw you wanted to punch me. I saw it in your eyes. You got that. Mm. You got it in you. You got that conduct in you. Because like, that was like the whole point was like, sure, like brawls happen that didn't necessarily step in the way of you yeah. guys having a friendship or kind of some camaraderie in the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think that's pretty cool. But also like the sort of... um I guess the commodification of violence is, is a little troubling. I mean, yeah. listen. Like that's how you define your relationships. Like anyway, whatever. Hashtag Italian. I didn't realize that they were actors, but that makes sense now in retrospect because there were a lot of monologues. For the most part, they worked. Some of them were cheesy though. You know, over earnest or yeah, in today's language, a little bit on the nose. Mm. Yes. But 
there is a theatricality to it, especially the guy who plays doc, the doc or doctor, uh, Dr. Death. Yeah. yeah. Where he kind of is pontificating and like throwing his body up to the sky and doing the kind of classic yeah. Shakespearean. I don't even know what you'd call that, but like not really even articulating to the fellow characters in the movie, just mm-hmm. kind of broadcasting it out to the heavens. Mm-hmm. Stone's girlfriend, whose name is Amanda. Wet, by, wet blanket Amanda. She's <laughs> played by Helen Morse. Ugh. I'm not sure what's going on with like her, that whole side thing where she's at the country club with the photographers and the, yeah. the orange juice. And she's complaining as if she's never heard of like what an undercover cop does. <laughs> Who is also her boyfriend? I think it's I think it's supposed to be overly blanketed of the comforts of the life that he could have and the life that he's enmeshed in currently. Because you find that even you know at the very end when he has to pop into undercover cop mode and defend the killer who's been picking off all the gravediggers, he still holds dearly the values of the biker gang. Right, and and so yes. his girlfriend represents this polished, easy, superficial. But also perhaps the sort of hyper-conservative conformist reality that Brady was mentioning yes. earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could be like the sort of, she's sort of the ground base, like the sort of Australian norm that maybe we're not aware of because we're not Australian and we're not living in 1974. Yeah. Dude's kissing my shoulder while I drink orange juice. Yeah. Is that about with feathered hair? <laughs> Playing tennis? <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, he he was a good policeman, but he's a good tennis player, and we're one player short. Yeah, like I don't, I don't quite. Is that I don't are un- they swingers? Is that I- <laughs> is that what's going on? And so there was a lot of a lot of lines like what I just recited, where she's like, maybe I should run that article on police brutality. So it's like, oh, she's a she's a editor of some uh, magazine because yeah, of photography. Yeah, uh, yeah, or a, yeah, yeah, a photographer, and and it goes from the country club to like a pool, like in a really upscale like villa. They were like two separate locations. Well, they're also and, two separate poles of a life of a life. You know, yeah. like he, I think she, he can easily exist on either side of it. And if you have these comforts and this facade, but it's kind of like this pastel version of life mm-hmm. that he is finding he doesn't really want to be involved in. Right. Because he wants to hang out with stinky mutants. And apparently he's well, typecast. Okay. We're going to get killed. But yeah, the, the whole idea, like the authenticity and like the sort of like, well, they have a code and like that whole idea of like honor among thieves or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, that speaks back to some of that uh, Marlon Brando sort of, James gang mysticism about being this like outlaw on the road and just doing your own thing. And I'm not sure that that necessarily holds up to like a lot of gangs. Perhaps it does the grave diggers as they're presented on film, but I'm not sure that I would necessarily apply that to the one percenters that I've encountered. Mm. Well, regardless of the implementation and execution of the sentiment, the fact that one of the last lines in the movie is him saying no cops, no cops. cops. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, it's like you feel like you feel like he's he's come around. Like there's yeah. a, he's on the other side yeah. of the, the horn there. Yeah, yeah. He's deciding for his own like honor. Like yeah. we're still cool. Yes, but I deserved what had what happened. Mm-hmm. Kind of a thing. Paid the piper. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I do like that the whole cop angle was really downplayed because you could have had a ton of scenes with cops talking behind the scenes and, mm-hmm. and trying to like him phoning home to home base. You know what I mean? Right. It was, there was like a midpoint in the movie where I was like, oh, that's right. He's an undercover cop in this movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you kind of get lost in it a bit. Yeah. Well, you never see him. He doesn't, he's not uh, on screen. He's not like um, 
dirtied by the cops. He emerges by himself. Yeah. And you never really see him with any other police. Mm -hmm. He's just kind of in and out on his own terms. So yeah, that makes sense. But the downside though is like how welcoming they were to be like, oh, you want to track down the... See, I'm totally even forgetting. The assassin? Yeah. The killer? Yeah, so embedding yourself in our gang is going to allow you to figure out who is trying to kill us after they killed this politician. Very thinly veiled like introduction into the gang. That's one of the the key weaknesses of the entire (laughs) movie is the entire whole uh, assassination (laughs) cop plot thing. Like if it was just about like this guy like having like a rough time like getting into the gang or like the gang and their experiences, but like the whole cop plot, I think is actually the, the key weakness of the whole movie. Yeah. All right, folks, I think that's going to wrap up our discussion for Stone. Uh, we've got some reviews. How Stone. do you feel about this? Stone? Stone. <laughs> let's, uh, let's kick these reviews to death. <laughs> Stone sticks out to me for its music, hands down. There was a point about 30 to 45 minutes into this movie where I was entranced, just trying to figure out where the music was going. I don't think the music ever really truly repeated. So just if you're really into music... I would highly recommend this movie, even if you're not into the story. It is one of those rare movies where you could just get lost listening to it, if you so desire. It elevated itself with a number of different shots that were a lot more sophisticated than typical genre film. There was a almost like a dolly shot through the wildflowers of the gravesite. There was a crane shot from above during a couple of the death scenes mm-hmm. that really showed a certain amount of sophistication that I wouldn't have expected from one of the earliest Australian biker movies. The police plot was pretty thin. This movie really surprised me with how great it was. I give it a eight. Hey. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I kind of loved it. All right. That's awesome. Okay. Well, I guess, you know, I've learned a lot about biker culture this week, <laughs> you know, and, I, and I'm working, I'm working through some of the staples and symbolism that come with it. But I I think stone was a very different depiction of what was going on. It's it's yes, it's rough and tumble, but I think the main focus of stone was how badly these people needed to find each other. And despite the rough edges and the lifestyle and the, I guess, lawlessness of it, how important it was for these people to have each other, uh, that this was, this is what made their world go round. And so by friendships, relationships, having the bar that they kicked the shit out of everybody else that was coming into riding around, making sure that everyone's solid, that everyone could be trusted. And then, so when stone is introduced and you get over the fact that his hair looks ridiculous, (laughs) You are seeing the outsider's perspective and warming into and being uh, invited into this culture that in the long run is what Stone has been lacking. And and the authenticity is what Stone is lacking in his own life, as we see by kind of this um, polished pastel facade that he has back at home with his girlfriend, with his tennis buddies, with his fresh squeeze orange juice and his leathers. Mm-hmm. 
overall, I think it's hot shit that it was done on such a low budget that it was done kind of close to respecting the culture where it's like, we're going to, we're going to pick and choose and steal and take these shots and get these people going and push this movie when it wasn't getting accepted anywhere and bring in the culture, like really bring in the culture by inviting bikers all over Australia to come and join. I think it's great. I think it's a classic. I really enjoyed it. I'm still just going to give it a seven though. I like how you started that with this week. I learned a lot about bike culture. We should just like have that every week. It's like this week I learned a lot about dance. This week I learned a lot about Mormons. (laughs) I learned a lot about disco. This week, I learned a lot about Bob Fosse's drug addiction. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so when people say like, oh, you know, like watching biker movies. Yeah, yeah, dude. All right. Easy rider. I'm, I come at it, It's like, man, that's like some basic ass bitch vanilla shit. <laughs> come on. Easy rider. Get get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like, you, like you, you don't know what, the, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> and then I was like, what's, you know, what's a real biker movie? Like Stone. Like, and that's, that's Stan. Stone. <laughs> Take the trip. What Stone gets right is the feeling of being inside a biker gang. It's like I've been in clubs. Um, the initiation ceremony like feels like that's that's what it's like. Mm-hmm. And some of like the like hangout scenes, like where they're just kind of chilling out, whatever. Like that's what being in a club, like at least in my experience, that's what it feels like. Stone, because of those those scenes, nails like a rare kind of authenticity and a certain kind of sweetness. It doesn't feel like a Hollywood made a movie about some bikers. It feels like a bunch of bikers got together and made an autobiography. Where it loses steam is in the well-worn police drama slash global assassination plot. (laughs) Well, when Um, you put it that way. (laughs) uh, It does look and feel like a director's first film. It's got some overconfidence. It's got a fair number of rough edges, but it's essential strength is a certain intangible feeling. I uh, can't really quite put your finger on it, but it's like, you know that you're watching a movie being made by people who know what they're talking about. The small knowing details that show this isn't just people who are visually familiar with motorcycles. They are familiar with riding motorcycles. So even in spite of its flaws and some of its faults, I'm still at a sincere seven. Nice. Yeah. So that's going to do it for Biker Movies Part 1, Stone. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, next week, we're going to be back with a very different movie, the <laughs> hyperbolic, ridiculous, uh, self-referential biker film by Craig R. Baxley, starring The Boz, uh, 1990s Stone Cold. Yes. So, I'm so excited. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. I'm so excited. It's a very different movie. If I yeah. get my ear pierced, I blame you. Brady Kimball. Are you going to get like a dangly, <laughs> a dangly cross, cross or like a little skeleton man? Oh my God. Don't even mess with my heartstrings. <laughs> I tell you what, okay. Brady, if you get one, I'll get one too. Guys. Only if it's the fractured heart and like if you put them together, it's, it makes it. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. I'm so down with this. And if you let me down, I'm going to be so disappointed. Get it. Uh, you guys so- are bonded forever. <laughs> Life bonded. <sighs> Blood brother. <laughs> Sub brother. So uh, next week, we're also going to have a guest with us, uh, Tyler Ferguson. I'm looking forward to that as well. Uh, As always, you can contact us on the social media. Solid6.net is our website, uh, Instagram, Twitter, everything else. If you have any uh, voicemails, any comments on tonight's episode or any other previous episode for that matter, just leave us a voicemail. We love hearing from you. We look forward to talking to you guys. Again. About motorcycles. About motorcycles. About hot babes. About mullets. 
Methamphetamine. And Seahawks. And Lance Hendrickson. Yes, you read my mind. Lance Hendrickson. All right. Well, good evening, mates. <laughs> Johnny's ready to go. Yeah, he's ready. You know that a forehead could be that powerful. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.